There is a famous account in the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus talks about His return on the day of the Lord after the resurrection and the final judgment. He describes the final judgment uh, in terms of a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. You remember the story, and He says the sheep on, on His right hand are those who have a relationship with Him, who will live forever with Him in heaven, and the goats are those on His left hand uh, who do not have a relationship with Him and who will live forever without Him, which is what we call hell. Uh, and I've always, uh, one of many things I've always thought about is, you know, why do the goats have to be the bad metaphor and the sheep get to be the good metaphor, right? Uh, now, I don't know a lot about sheep and goats, but I came across uh, a little bit of writing on that topic recently. Uh, this author said, um, goats are capricious. They are impulsive and unpredictable, devious and contrary. If they are not poking their heads through fences, they may be standing on their hind legs, stretching for those tender leaves just out of reach. Goats are never content with what they have. They are experts in opening gates and squeezing through small gaps because they hate to be confined. Fences that will handle sheep, cattle, and horses will not hold goats. They will work tirelessly to spring themselves from any situation they deem inhibiting. Consequently, goats are not very good followers." Gregarious behavior is a term that refers to the flocking or herding instinct, which is found strongly in sheep, cattle, and horses. Again, this quality is rather weak in goats. They prefer leading or going off on their own. This is really interesting. So, uh, sheep, good followers, goats, um, for all those reasons, like to be going off on their own. They like to be leaders and not followers. So maybe that's part of what Jesus doesn't like about the goats. Also, if you ever looked at a goat, they have like devil eyes. I mean, their eyes are really scary. So that could be it too. I don't know. Um, but I came across a really interesting uh, idea that I had never heard of before uh, relating to goats and sheep. And this is a, a, a real thing that, that is done, but I've got a little clip from a movie that explains it. I want you to pay particularly attention to the name of the goat in this illustration and also what it's doing. Artie? What is it? A Judas goat. Didn't you ever see one? No. What does it do? Watch and you'll find out. See, when they get to the slaughterhouse, he decks to one side and the silly sheep go in to get their throats cut. <laughs> okay, what's, what's the name of the goat? Anybody get it? It's a Judas goat, yeah. So this is a real thing. Apparently in stockyards, I don't know if it's done as much anymore, but it used to be somewhat common as I understand that and there would be a Judas goat, uh, a goat that was trained, because goats like to lead and not follow, a goat that was trained to lead a flock into the slaughterhouse. Right? And, and literally, the goat would lead the flock into the slaughterhouse. It would peel off at the last minute. The, the sheep would go in. Uh, and, a, and a goat might lead multiple groups of sheep all day long into the slaughterhouse. Uh, a dog won't do it. Uh, a donkey guard animals won't do it, right? Because they won't abandon the flock. Um, but the Judas goat has no problem abandoning the flock. It just wants to be in the lead. It doesn't care what happens to the sheep that follow it. Such an interesting concept, right? The Judas goat. A desire to lead, not follow, uh, that leads to um, great destruction. 
So uh, Jesus seems to think there's something great about the sheep, the sheep that follow the voice of their shepherd. And, and I think we would all say in a vacuum that we would like to be sheep, not goats, right? That we would like to follow the voice of our Father and obey God and do what God tells us to do. However, we don't live in a vacuum. Uh, and in our lives, it is very common in my life, it is very common to say, ah, but in this particular set of circumstances, Maybe I should be a leader. Maybe I should tell God how we should go forward here. Maybe I know better than my father does. This is the situation that the brothers of Joseph find themselves in in our story. Their father has spoken clearly. Their father has singled out Joseph to be the preeminent one amongst the brothers. Uh, normally, in this kind of ancient culture, the firstborn child would be the preeminent child. The firstborn is going to be the one that's going to inherit all of the, or the majority of the property of the father. They're going to have a leadership role in the family. Um, but Jacob has picked somebody else. Jacob has picked Joseph to be that person. And he has exalted him with a robe and with authority. And his brothers don't like it. Brothers don't want to be sheep. They don't want to be followers, especially not followers of Joseph. And so they decide to be goats. Uh, really kind of an interesting story as, as um, Joseph goes about this encounter of being betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. Um, we're not ever told what's going on in Joseph's head. And we, don't, we don't get any insight into what Joseph is thinking or feeling. He, you maybe noticed he doesn't even speak in this story to his brothers. He speaks to the, the random stranger when he's looking for directions. Um, so men do sometimes stop and ask for directions. But then after that, um, he doesn't say a word uh, to his brothers, or at least we don't have a word of his voice recorded. The brothers speak as a group mostly, but there are two that are singled out. You notice that two of the brothers who are identified and giving speaking roles in this story, the first is Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn. Reuben is the one who should be the preeminent. He is the one who should be receiving all the inheritance of his father. Um, but for other reasons that we're not going into right now, um, he's, been, um, he's out of favor with his dad. Reuben, however, speaks up. You notice Reuben is the only one in the story who advocates for Jacob. He says, don't kill Jacob. I'm sorry, Joseph. Don't kill Joseph. Throw him into the pit, but don't kill him. And it sounds like he goes away and comes back planning to rescue his brother and take him back to their dad. Reuben's the only figure in the story who seems to be borderline a good guy, right? And then there's Judah. Judah's not a good guy. Uh, Judah says, all right, brothers, you've been persuaded not to murder Joseph, um, but we sure as heck don't want him to go back home. How do we get rid of Joseph permanently if we're not going to kill him? I have an idea. We can sell him. We can make some money on the side and be insured we never have to encounter this guy again. Uh, we're not told exactly what Judah's motivation is, um, but I think we are to recognize some, some little details that we might have missed if you've not read this story before on your own. Um, in the 35th and 36th chapters of Genesis, um, the, there are several brothers that are 
well, they fall out of favor with their dad. So Judah is the fourth born, okay, of the, of the 12 brothers. Judah is the fourth born. The first born is Reuben. Reuben is out of favor with his dad because he slept with one of his dad's concubines, one of his half-brother's moms, right? So you can see how that might cause you to fall out of favor with your father. So Reuben's out. Uh, he's not going to be the one who inherits. Simeon and Levi, the second and third oldest brothers, are out of favor with their dad because when their sister was assaulted, um, they tricked a nearby city. Actually, the city of Shechem we're hearing about. They tricked the city, and um, it's a pretty graphic story, but the summary of the story is they went in and they murdered everyone in the city um, when they were unawares. And Jacob is incredibly angry with Simeon and Levi, so the second and third guys are out. So Judah, as the fourthborn, has an opportunity to make a play. If he can get rid of Joseph, who is the the favorite child, maybe he becomes the leader of the family. It's not going to be Reuben or Simeon or Levi. He's the next in line. Um, This is is an attempt, I believe, for Judah to say, hey, um, I don't want to be a sheep. I want to be a goat, even if it means leading my brother to slaughter. And for this, Judah's willing to be a ringleader who betrays his brother and betrays his father. By the way, um, I, I think this, this idea of betrayal is incredibly important and more common than we'd like to admit. Uh, and I, I think, in fact, most of us, when we think about betrayal, think of it in that same vacuum, oh, I would never do that, right? I would never disobey the will of my father, and I would never betray someone. But then there are all so many ways that we can rationalize betrayal, aren't there? Uh, yeah, but you know, I, I know I shouldn't tell anybody what that person said, but they're such a terrible person. Everyone deserves to know what they're thinking. I better, it's kind of a civic duty to gossip that story out into the world, right? Or, or oh yeah, I know maybe, um, you know, maybe I should stick up for my boss, but he never sticks up for me, and so I'm just going to step back and let the bad stuff happen. And there's, there are so many easy ways for us to say, oh, it just makes sense. And we make it about the other person and not about ourselves. It's their fault that I have to betray them. It's their fault that I have to go back on my promise. It's their fault. Um, If she had been more uh, interested in me, maybe I wouldn't have been interested in some other woman, right? We just make it about them, and we find ways to rationalize our betrayals. We have another famous traitor today, uh, a guy named Judas. We all know Judas's story. Uh, Judas is a really interesting figure because um, unlike with Judah, we're not told much of his motivation. We don't get a lot of insight in it except that they both make some money off the deal, right? They both make some money off the deal. But otherwise, um, we don't know what's going on in Judas's head. We don't know why he decides to betray Jesus. Um, There are many possible reasons. Um, Many books have been written on this topic, Um, but I think it's significant that the Bible doesn't tell us. It's significant that Scripture doesn't say, oh, this is why he did it. Because if if we had that, maybe we could try to come up with some justification or rationalization. But, But in the end, the Bible just says, hey, it doesn't matter why he did it. It doesn't matter how many layers of lies we tell to ourselves and others. The reality is, is a betrayal is a betrayal, right? That this is an act of evil, whatever his motivation might have been. Oh, this is cool. Um, uh, 
I hope you notice these stories are, are, are intended to be read in parallel. So, we have two stories where a brother betrays the favored brother, right? Joseph is being betrayed by Judah. Jesus is being betrayed by one of his brothers. He calls the disciples brothers by his brother Judas. In both stories, um, there is a small sum of silver coins exchanged, 20 or 30 silver coins exchanged for the betrayal. In both stories, the one who is betrayed um, descends into incredible suffering. Jesus is arrested and flogged and crucified and descends into hell. Joseph is arrested and sold into slavery, and we know the rest of the story. Then he's arrested and enslaved, and then he goes from slavery to jail, and his life gets worse and worse. And both Joseph and Jesus emerge from that role as suffering saviors who rescue and redeem the world. Ah, and if you didn't see it already, um, the, the, the name Judas is a Greek word for a Hebrew name. Anybody want to guess what the Hebrew name of Judas is? Judah, right? It's the same name. Nobody ever called Judas Judas, right? They said, hey, Judah, how are you doing today? So, Judah in both these stories is the betrayer. In both these stories, the result of his betrayal is ultimately God's victory through a suffering Savior. It doesn't make the betrayal less bad, though. Uh, in, in college, I took a class on, Devante's, uh, on, on Dante's Divine Comedy with my wife. It was really a fun class. If you ever read the Divine Comedy, this is Dante's… He's got a three-part epic poem called Hell, Purgatory, and Heaven, and it's his journey um, through those realms. Super cool. Um, the, by far, the most interesting part is hell. Uh, and that's what everyone reads. If you read just one part, you read the, the Inferno. Um, Dante was an author in the 14th century in Italy. And so, uh, as he's going through hell, he, he, he has to people hell, right? He has to have somebody in there being punished. And so, he just does what all of us would do. He writes in all the people he doesn't like, and he puts them in hell. It's so great. It's like, oh, here's this guy I didn't like in third grade. He's in hell. And this person, it's really fun. Um, so, as you're going through uh, the Divine Comedy uh, in the Inferno, Dante starts out in a wood, and then um, he meets this guy, Virgil, who's a, a poet with the Aeneid. He meets this guy, Virgil, who's a, who's a ghost. And Virgil is his guide as they journey down these concentric rings. And he envisions hell as these concentric rings that you kind of spiral down. Every ring has a different theme. And as you go deeper into hell, you get to worse and worse crimes. And the ninth circle of hell, the lowest level of hell, isn't a place of heat. It's a place of cold. It's a frozen lake. And in the middle of the frozen lake is the devil with three heads. And the devil is eternally chewing on three people. It's a really gruesome image. And the three people are Judas and Brutus and Cassius. Right? Judas, of course, we know. Brutus and Cassius, the two who most famously led the betrayal of Julius Caesar, right? Et tu, Brute. And so, um, Dante envisions that the worst kind of crime we can commit is betrayal, right? The worst circle of hell is reserved for traitors. It's a really powerful image. And if you've ever experienced a betrayal, you know what Dante's talking about. If you've ever experienced um, 
Not all betrayals are physical. Usually they are a shattering of trust. If you've ever experienced a shattering of your trust by somebody that you loved and cared for, you know what Dante's talking about. An affair is a betrayal. So is a lie, especially a lie told right to your face. Gossiping is a betrayal. I really, I'm on a little bit of a kick about gossiping right now, um, but I think gossiping is a really terrible kind of betrayal where someone comes and shares their story and confidence to you, and then you or I share it just for the mere fact of trying to sound more interesting at parties. What strikes me is that some of our betrayals are kind of tempting, aren't they? I'd like to sound more interesting at parties. Judas is a traitor, but what about Peter? Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. Isn't that a betrayal? Don't we commit that betrayal when we sit in a conversation with a friend or at work and duck our heads and change the topic when someone says something about God that makes us uncomfortable instead of speaking up for the one who stood up for us? I think the most uncomfortable fact about betrayal, as profoundly life-shattering as it can be, uh, is that most of us, if we're honest, could fall into some definition of being a traitor. Most of us, if we're honest, at some point in our lives, maybe multiple points in our lives, have betrayed both our brothers and our father. There is some good news, however, in this story. Um, actually, there's a couple of pieces of good news in this story. Uh, the, the first is uh, in the story of Judah, more happens than just chapter 37. I, I think one of the, the great tragedies of the story of Judas, Judas the betrayer of Jesus, is that after he experiences some remorse and he throws the money back in the temple, he goes out and the story says he, he hangs himself. Um, scripture says there is a worldly grief that leads to death and a godly grief that leads to repentance. But grief in itself, remorse in itself, is neither good nor bad. It's just an experience. It's a feeling. It's how we respond to that feeling that matters. What's tragic about the story of Judas is not just that he betrays Jesus, but that afterwards he gives up. Afterwards he has worldly grief, but no godly grief. He doesn't repent. He simply runs away from what he's done. Judah has a different story. Judah has a different story. Uh, we, we don't get it yet, but later in the book of Genesis, we're going to hear some other moments in the story of Judah. Judah, who here is the ringleader, encouraging his brothers to get rid of Jesus, to sell him into slavery so that he can be the, the goat and not the sheep. He wants to be the leader of his family. Uh, Judah, later in our story, will come full circle. Later in our story, we're going to have a moment where Joseph's only full brother, whose name is Benjamin, the new favorite child of their father, the one who is now in line between jo Judah and his goals, Benjamin's life is at risk. 
And at the end of our story, Judah will offer up his own life to save the life of his half-brother Benjamin. Judah changes jobs, right? He moves from being the Judas figure to the Jesus figure in his story. And his story reminds us there is no limit on the forgiveness of Christ if we simply are willing to walk towards our Savior. One other, I think, encouraging detail in uh, the story of Scripture about Judas and Judah and betrayer betrayal and traitors. Uh, we're told that on the cross, when Jesus is crucified, there is a sign that stands above the cross, and the sign says, King of the Jews. It's written in multiple languages. There's a lot of controversy about this statement. Pilate puts it up. The rest of the Jews don't like it. The Jewish leaders don't like it, but Pilate says it's going to stay. That phrase, King of the Jews, is really important. Uh, the, the word Jews actually is really important. So, um, just really briefly, um, that word has an important history. In the time of Joseph and his brothers, uh, there's this guy Jacob, their dad, whose name is Israel. Uh, and uh, in about 500, 400 plus years, um, these brothers will all become tribes. And there will be uh, not just a few people, but tens of thousands of people who descend from Judah and from Reuben and from Simeon and from Levi. Uh, and then about a thousand years after the story of Joseph and Judah, um, those tribes will come together and make a nation. They're going to call it Israel after this first ancestor. It only lasts for three kings. They're going to divide. And the northern kingdom is going to keep the name Israel. And the southern kingdom is going to be called Judah after that tribe that primarily makes it up after that ancestor we wrote about today. Um, over the next thousand years, the northern kingdom will be obliterated. It will cease to exist. But the southern kingdom, even though they're taken away, they, they kind of hang on. Uh, eventually, they come back. And in the time of Jesus, all of the Jews are people of Judah. That's where the name comes from. And so, Scripture doesn't say Jesus was the king of the Jews. It actually says He was the king of the Judahites, right? The king of the Judahites, like the Midianites and the Ishmaelites, the Judahites. And we can read that, I think, appropriately and read it to mean all of the Jews. But it can also mean something different. It could be He's king of all the Judases. Right? He's king for all the traitors, all the betrayers, all those who gossiped and lied and cheated and went back on their word, all those like me and like you who have not been faithful to their father, who have wanted to be goats and not sheep. Jesus is our King too. And the promise of Scripture is that through godly grief and through repentance, if we are willing eventually to change from trying to be sheep, trying to be goats to trying to be sheep, little Judases can become little Jesuses. And that's our hope and our prayer in this story, that we might be a people who move from traitors the followers of the King of Traitors. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.